Welcome to this podcast from the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office, in which we ask the question, what is the state of the judiciary in South Africa? The speakers are Professor Hugh Corder, former Dean of the Law Faculty at the University of Cape Town, and Ms. Alison Tilly and Mr. Mbekezele Benjamin of the organization Judges Matter. The moderator is Advocate Mike Pothia. For more CPLO podcasts, please visit our website, cplo.org.za. This podcast was made possible with the support of the Hunt Seidel Foundation. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed via our website at cplo.org.za. Please sign up for our newsletter. Full biographies of the speakers appear on our website. This series of roundtables and podcasts is supported by the Hans Seidel Foundation. We are proud to contribute to the National Dialogue on Governance and Democracy. Our purpose is to understand as much as we can about the state of the judiciary. We've asked Professor Hugh Corder, who I think will be familiar to almost all of you, um, to give us an overview from his perspective, um, to take into account also to to reach back into the past. Um, Hugh did a lot of work on the, the bench during the apartheid era, and he's been observing it keenly in the democratic era. So we can do a little bit of uh, comparative analysis, I suppose, and, and ask questions about how used it to be and how is it now and, and so on. Alison and Mbekezeli both work for the organization Judges Matter. Alison is the coordinator, Mbekezeli is a researcher there. And they do a huge amount of work in monitoring the judiciary, monitoring the selection process at the Judicial Service Commission, keeping up with the, dare I say, growing number of scandals and upsets and um, controversies <laughs> that are emerging, um, looking, at, looking ahead uh, to say, what do we need from our judiciary? What do we need from a new chief justice? And we will be getting a new chief justice towards the end of this year and so on. Um, the way that we're going to do this is that Hugh will start and, and give us a presentation. Uh, I've asked that it not be longer than 25 minutes. Um, and then I will have a conversation with Alison and Mbekezeli about some of the points that we've just mentioned. So that'll be a bit more of a, a to and fro, and we'll keep that also to 25 minutes or less. And that then ought to give us um, a good slice of time for questions and comments from all of you. That'll be the, the rough format. I'm happy if we need to, to go on beyond 12 o'clock, uh, if there is a demand for that, we could always take another 15 minutes. Everyone, of course, is free to leave whenever they need to leave. Um, we did say 10.30 to 12. Um, before I hand over to Hugh, I've mentioned that, that the presentations will be recorded uh, and made available later on podcast. Your questions, comments, etc., will not be recorded, so you have the assurance of, of um, confidentiality there. And the last thing that I want to say is that as a faith-based organization, we always take a minute at the beginning of these meetings to recollect ourselves, to invoke the Holy Spirit, if that is what you would like to do, or just to focus on what has brought us together this morning. So please just join me for a few seconds of quiet.
Right. Thank you very much. Um, I'm still just seeing a few more people arriving um, in the seconds of quiet. I, I let a few more people in. So we must just, Megan, keep an eye on that column so that we don't have people trying to get in without success. All right. Hold in. Okay. If anyone picks up any problems of, of, uh, that you can't hear, you can't see, or any queries, please just use the chat box to communicate that to us, and we will do our best to um, sort out the problem sort of on the hoof, if we can. With that, let me uh, hand over now to Hugh Corder, and uh, let's listen to Hugh's presentation. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Chair, and thank you to the uh, Catholic Liaison Office in Parliament for uh, arranging this seminar, this webinar. Uh, at the time uh, you initially wrote, uh, oh. could, uh, so this is extremely uh, relevant and timely in my view. Um, thank you very much also for asking me to focus on, let's call it the historical context as well as the lead up to the present. Uh, I have been focused on the work of the judiciary since 1978 uh, with that brief overview of the past. And to say that with singular exceptions, uh, the South African Superior Court Judiciary uh, from the outset was complicit uh, with uh, white minority interests uh, in this country. The bench was composed uh, for a very long time exclusively of uh, white male judges. At the time uh, we moved to democracy in 1994, of the 160-odd judges on the Superior Court bench, uh, two were not white and two were women. Uh, the rest were uh, white males. Uh, there were some exceptional periods in the history of the uh, Superior Court bench as a whole. When uh, the judges uh, didn't uh, uh, reach judgments, which were wholly consonant with the interests of uh, the white minority uh, in Parliament. Immediately after Union in 1910, uh, the judges, uh, although they saw their role uh, as nation-building, nation in their terms meaning uh, uh, the Dutch-speaking and English-speaking white people, um, uh, but they were also at that period uh, intolerant of the development of executive discretion. So they, uh, on a number of occasions, uh, wrapped Parliament over the knuckles for giving too much power to the executive. Uh, that was, uh, uh, in, in fact, uh, in line uh, with uh, judiciaries elsewhere in the uh, British Empire at that point. Of course, also in the early 1950s, uh, in the uh, what became known as the Coloured Vote Crisis, immediately after the accession to power of the apartheid government, 
the uh, appellate division had a number of clashes uh, with the legislative schemes of parliament. Interestingly, if one looks back to the removal of black voters, black African voters from the common voters role in the 1930s, the judiciary uh, created no uh, obstacles uh, or interpreted the law uh, so as to throw no obstacles in uh, that legislative plan. But war, pandemic, and a universal trend to empower the executive branch over the course of the 20th century meant that by the mid-1960s, national party hegemony was reflected on the bench. By the 1980s uh, and the states of emergency, which uh, many of us can remember, uh, the vast majority of the judiciary and the dominant uh, trend in the appellate division uh, was to be, as has been described, more executive-minded than the executive, perhaps. So the question has to be posed. Why have we assigned the courts such a central safeguarding role in our constitutional democracy? There are two main reasons for this. I, at the outset, I said, firstly, that there were singular exceptions to the dominant judicial view under uh, both colonialism and apartheid. These were cases in which judges were able and willing to exploit gaps and silences in the law and the ambiguity of language, relying often on common law values and the common law emphasis on justice and individual rights, both in the Roman Dutch law and in English law, to find for those who opposed apartheid or were being targeted and were being targeted by the, re the, re the regime. Yes, these judgments were not minority, but taken together with the leading role in the struggle of lawyers, and I'm going to mention a few, uh, Mandela, Tambo, Pichi, Fisher, Mohammed, Kentridge, Bezos, Langa, Moseneke, Chaskelson, Sachs, Krichler, Goldstone, Didcot, and so on. I would argue that the ideal of social justice through government under law or the rule of law remained very much alive. So, just to repeat, uh, despite the overwhelming uh, uh, identity with white minority interests in that period, 1910 to 1990, uh, there were significant exceptions uh, in judgments of the court and, and any number of people uh, were assisted uh, against uh, the depredations of the apartheid regime uh, by court findings in their favor. The biggest, uh, uh, the most uh, powerful uh, uh, resistance movement also uh, frequently expressed its views in terms of uh, uh, written documents endorsing human rights. So I refer to the African claims of the ANC, of course, the Freedom Charter of the mid-1950s. And there were a number of NGOs which grew up, uh, which were founded uh, or, uh, and developed in the late 70s and the early 80s, such as Lawyers for Human Rights, 
the Legal Resources Center, the Public Interest Law Firm Nardell, the Black Lawyers Association, etc., etc. These organizations functioned together with those significant lawyers I have mentioned. So taken together, I think this is the first reason why the degree of faith remained uh, in the law. But secondly, the timing of our transition to democracy, uh, together with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the disbandment of the authoritarian uh, uh, USSR, uh, coincided with a massive constitutionalization of both Central uh, and Eastern European countries, which were liberated from Soviet hegemony, and a renewal in Africa, particularly in the African Commonwealth countries, starting with Namibia, followed by us, and then uh, in, in the 1990s and beyond, uh, uh, Uganda, Malawi, Kenya, etc., etc. In all of these, judicial review, faith was, was placed in judicial review of both uh, uh, executive action and legislative uh, action. That's the second reason for me, the timing of our transition to democracy. So in the spirit of never again, never again will there be a denial of basic rights. Never again will there be a tolerance of autocratic government. Uh, this spirit characterized the multi-party negotiating process and the work of the Constitutional Assembly. How has this been achieved in our Constitution? I would suggest through five primary building blocks. Firstly, a new understanding of the doctrine of a separation of powers. Each of the branches of government has clearly defined powers in the Constitution, and there is a clear understanding, even though that phrase separation of powers does not occur in our Constitution, the judgments of the Constitutional Court have found that it is there, and it depends upon a proper understanding of the limits of the authority of each branch of government, but most importantly, a mutual respect or deference. That word deference under apartheid, uh, uh, that word deference under apartheid very often meant uh, that judges had to defer to the executive. Uh, under our constitution, there must be a mutual deference, a mutual respect among the three branches of government. That's the first important point, the re-envisioning of the doctrine of the separation of power. Secondly, we all know we have a written rigid constitution uh, with explicit value statements in section one. And I would particularly refer to section 1D, which uh, sets as a value the supremacy of the constitution and the rule of law, and 1E, which refers to the multi-party democratic system of regular elections to achieve accountability, responsiveness, and openness. The third element, the third building block is, as I've referred to before, judicial review of, of legislative action. Uh, this is central to ensuring compliance by all of those who exercise public power, compliance with the constitution. And together with that, we saw the establishment of the constitutional court and a new appointments mechanism through the Judicial Service Commission. The fourth element that I would refer to are a, a, a group of new procedural rights in the Bill of Rights, 
in sections 32 to 34, the right of access to information, the right to administrative justice, and the right of access to court. Those uh, who practiced law or study law under apartheid will remember the infamous Aster clauses, whereby Parliament attempted to exclude the review power of the courts. The Aster clauses cannot, uh, in, in plain terms, exist anymore lawfully uh, because we have the right in section 34 of access to court. And fifthly, the fact that our constitution has a transformative agenda. Again, the word transformation does not occur in the constitution, but it is, uh, it, it, it is in the very fabric, uh, in the lifeblood of the constitution. So those, I would argue, are the building blocks. And how has this worked out? I would say that it's worked out, as far as the judiciary is concerned, uh, in its review power in two phases. The first phase, 1994 to 2008. Although there was some resistance from the old guard uh, among the judiciary, uh, centered in the appellate division, now the Supreme Court of Appeal, great leadership from Chief, Chief Justices Corbett, Mohammed Chaskelson, and Langer, and an astute balancing act by the Constitutional Court, packed with justices with a very nuanced sense of the limits of their authority showing appropriate deference, the product of the decades of involvement in struggle politics or acting as representatives of opponents of apartheid. Worked together with uh, a fearlessness uh, in the exercise of their uh, judicial review power. They were not scared at all to call out the executive and parliament, most notably in 1995, when they upset the arrangements for municipal elections in the Western Cape uh, and President Mandela uh, was called to account on that occasion. And we will all, all remember the treatment action campaign cases uh, and uh, the extent to which uh, that set Parliament and the executive right. So I would say that that first period, 94 to 2008, was marked by uh, a, a brilliant uh, sense of balance being achieved, laying a foundation for the future. And then we moved to the period 2009 to 2018. This coincided with the Zuma presidency uh, and the court, led by the Constitutional Court, uh, buoyed by the resolute and principled start in the first 15 years, the Constitutional Court showed impeccable courage and commitment to constitutional values and principles, as it was confronted by repeated and willful acts of executive and legislative delinquency. It kept true to its mandate. Many high courts followed suit, and we must not, never forget the work of the Supreme Court of Appeal, which has often been uh, overlooked in its own resoluteness, uh, I would argue, in its commitment to the values of the Constitution. The problem is, and it is a real problem, this commitment to principle and the appropriate role of the Constitutional Court and the judiciary more broadly comes at a price. And the price is overt hostility from the executive, from legislature, and from dominant political party leadership. 
I just want to read two quotes uh, from, in fact, uh, 2011 uh, and then one from 2015, uh, as follows. The day the judiciary tries to substitute itself into the principle of the people shall govern, it runs the risk of losing the respect of the people. There is no democratic order in some kind of country that is subjected to a judicial dictatorship. There is a coordinated liberal offensive by people who do not have power to seek to challenge almost any decision by the president and the executive. That was Minister Blade and Zimande in 2011. President Zuma in 2011, the powers conferred on the courts cannot be regarded as superior to the powers resulting from a mandate given by the people in a popular vote, and so on and so on. There were myriad uh, such quotes uh, at that point. So I think it's fair to say that uh, what has happened in this country is both the legalization of politics and the, politi the politicization of the law. The legalization of politics occurs when political parties and organs of civil society resort to the courts often, mostly, in total frustration at the uh, lawlessness or the unlawfulness, rather, uh, of actions of the executive uh, and the legislature. Uh, that can lead, of course, uh, it is argued, to the politicization of the law, uh, that uh, uh, judges uh, fall foul of the temptation uh, to express their own political views or what they deem to be the political views of the majority of the population uh, through their judgments. What is critical in this is that the courts have no army to summon uh, in, 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 in the enforcement of their judgments. They must work with the executive. And in order to retain their legitimacy the courts must maintain the confidence of the large majority of the public. And I would argue that our courts have succeeded in doing that, particularly in this bleak period of the last eight to 10 years. The courts have maintained popular legitimacy uh, uh, in support of some of their more controversial uh, judgments. So, what is the, how does the executive respond? Uh, the dominant party political leadership uh, tries to bring the courts into line, in quotes. How do they do, do this? As we've seen, they do it by populist rhetoric, and we've, been, uh, uh, we've seen a lot of it in the last couple of months. We've seen an allegation in evidence before the Zondo Commission of political, of bribery, or uh, attempted bribery of judges. There's been nothing to substantiate that that has come into the public domain. But typically, the executive would seek to influence the process of appointment, not only to the High Court, but of more uh, particularly to the Constitutional Court and to uh, officers of judicial leadership, like the Chief Justiceship. The key institution here is the Judicial Service Commission. And I, I uh, have to acknowledge that in an article published in 1992, I argued enormously strongly for uh, the institution of a Judicial Service Commission. I would have constituted it differently from what it is today, 
but I think ultimately it is the right way to appoint judges. I would say broadly, and I'm going to be coming to an end, uh, Mike, in case you're getting worried. Um, I would say broadly on appointments, the Judicial Service Commission has done well. It's done well on demographic transformation of the judiciary. Uh, I must say, demographic transformation does not always uh, coincide with ideological transformation uh, and, and, and the other way around. But I would say that uh, the um, JSC has broadly uh, uh, maintained uh, uh, the appointment of people to the High Court and Superior Court bench, uh, people of integrity, people good, with good uh, uh, working habits uh, and people who enjoy, uh, can be trusted and who enjoy uh, the support and legitimacy of the profession and the wider public. And we see an example in uh, President Zuma's appointment of Chief Justice McQueen of one uh, which frankly probably backfired on President Zuma uh, uh, contrary to his expectation, but this is reflective of patterns of appointment all over the world. Who are the key players in the uh, JSC? It was significant for me, uh, there are four presidential appointees on the JSC, and there are eight or nine party politicians. Together, that constitutes a majority of the JSC, uh, which varies between 23 and 24 members. For me, it was highly significant at one of the first presidential acts by President Zuma in mid-2008 was to fire, without notice to them, the four presidential appointees who had been appointed by President Mandela in 1994 and had remained throughout uh, President Mbeki's one and a three-quarter terms of office uh, as the presidential appointees. They included uh, George Bezos. But the members of parliament as well are, are a critical constituency, and we've seen varying uh, patterns of behavior from uh, the members of parliament, as well as a tendency to vote en bloc, uh, particularly the representatives of the dominant party in, in parliament, the ANC. That's all I want to say on judicial appointments broadly. It is in the area, however, of judicial discipline, which is squarely part of the work of the JSC, that it has failed ignominiously from the beginning to the end. A structure for judicial discipline was only put in place legislatively with massive amendments and the addition of a new chapter to the JSC Act in 2008. We're now familiar with this. You get something called the Judicial Conduct Committee. That's the body which spoke yesterday on Chief Justice McQueen and possibly the recommendation by the JCC of a JCT, the Judicial Conduct Tribunal, and we saw that in December last year in respect of Judge President Klopper and his alleged uh, uh, misconduct in mid-2008. That 12-year gap exemplifies uh, the paralysis of the JSC as far as judicial discipline is concerned. I would refer to the Matata matter, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, the delayed judgments uh, uh, issue, um, and there have been a couple of other smaller uh, issues in relation to judges Maluleke and Parker. 
Uh, I want to leave further detailed comments to the judges' matter participants, uh, although I'm happy to uh, comment at question time if necessary. Briefly then to the future, for me, what is critical will be to see how the JSC deals with both uh, yesterday's recommendation uh, in regard to the Chief Justice and his remarks on Israel, uh, but also, more importantly, perhaps, uh, to the Chlopa matters uh, which uh, are before, uh, which are not yet before the JSC, but which may well become uh, come to the JSC, because the JSC is the body which ultimately must recommend action or no action. In a sense, uh, the JSC's uh, decision will depend upon uh, which faction comes out on top uh, in the ANC. Uh, Secondly, I think it will be critical as to whom uh, President Ramaphosa appoints to the five vacancies which will occur, some of which are already there too, in, uh, in the Constitutional Court this year. That is almost half the, the, the number of judges uh, on the bench. And if you, if you just cast your mind back to some of the, uh, some of the uh, more uh, extraordinary events during the Trump presidency in the United States with uh, that he managed to get three appointments to the Supreme Court and they serve for life. Uh, our judges on the Constitutional Court serve for 12 or 15 years. But there are going to be five vacancies this year. And then thirdly, critically, uh, who gets appointed as the Chief Justice of South Africa at the latest by October. Uh, let's see whether it is uh, necessary to be earlier than that uh, or not. Thank you, Chair. That's all I want to say. I hope that I haven't gone on over time. Uh, no, I don't think you did. And thank you very much indeed, Hugh, for that, uh, that great overview, <coughs> reaching quite far back and bringing us right up to decisions, findings that were made yesterday by the Judicial Conduct Tribunal. Um, obviously, during the question time, we'll come back to uh, some of the points that you made. I just wanted to flag one in particular. You, you say that you, you believe that the courts are still maintaining uh, the confidence of the public and, and of sort of popular legitimacy. And um, when, when one sees the numbers of people that on occasion arrive at court in support of uh, of a Jacob Zuma or an Ace Magashule, for example, um, in a sense, uh, prejudging the issue and claiming that such people are, are almost by definition innocent and that the moves against them are purely political. One wonders a little bit how uh, the courts are, in fact, whether the courts are, in fact, retaining as much popular legitimacy. In other words, whether their decisions were they to go against Zuma or Ramakshuri, for example, uh, would be respected. But we'll come back to, to that question. Um, <clears throat> Alison and Beccazelli, if you would both unmute yourselves now, and we will have a conversation. Um, Hugh brought us to the Judicial Service Commission, and as I said in the introduction, that is where Judges Matter does a lot of its work. You observe the selection process and the interview process of judges um, very, very carefully and closely at the JSC. Um, and you also, of course, uh, observe 
the disciplinary side of the JSC's activities. So may I ask you, uh, first of all, and I don't mind which of you deals with the question, just to give, again, a brief overview for those who may not know of how the JSC goes about um, its, its process of receiving nominations and then making recommendations for the appointment of judges, just in a, in a nutshell, how does that work? Okay, uh, thanks, Mike, and uh, uh, thanks, Hugh, for that uh, outline. Uh, very briefly, how the JSC uh, does appointments is that it, it, it calls for nominations or applications, which people submit, and, and then it, it has a, what is called a shortlisting or a sifting committee. Um, that committee assesses the candidates and then draws up a short list, um, uh, well, firstly, a long list, and then at a meeting of the JSC, a short list is then drawn up, and then it is then sent publicly. Um, after um, that public short list, uh, there will be uh, comments that come from the organized legal profession and uh, members of the public as well. Um, interviews are, are then held, usually it's April and October of each year, and then at that, those interviews are, are public and that's where candidates get asked questions um, on, to assess their fitness. Uh, and then only after, after that process will the JSC um, make a, a recommendation to the president for a candidate to be um, appointed. So that's just the process in a nutshell. And it's an, it's an open process. Anyone and everyone can pitch up there and, and watch the the interviews, and I believe that they are also uh, carried online in various ways. Yes, the, the process is open. Um, we try to live stream it every every year, um, and uh, we wish that more, more people would, would attend, but mm. it seems that over, over the years, um, people do watch the interviews. In, in the time that Judges Matter has uh, live stream the interviews and publish the interviews online on YouTube, um, over 1 million uh, views of those videos have been, have, have been viewed. So people are quite interested in the, in the, in the process. Um, um, and the other difficulty though, is that it's not so accessible. Um, the interviews are in Midrand, and so not many people can pitch up there, but it is, it is mm. open uh, nominally. Mm. Alison, Hugh uh, said that when it comes to the judicial discipline side of the JSC's activities, uh, they have failed ignominiously in their mandate. Two-headed question, would you agree with that assessment? And can you actually name a, a, a disciplinary uh, process which has run its course from initial complaint through to um, a final exoneration or uh, recommendation of suspension? Has that happened yet? Well, I think, I, I mean, ironically, um, the most recent example we have is the process involving the Chief Justice, uh, where a complaint was laid and a decision has been made relatively quickly. So it is possible. I would agree with Aunt Dant, with you, that the the process is in general broken. And I think we have examples of where, it's, of where it's more broken than others. But I mean, there's been the issues that, that, are, that are ongoing now with complaints around uh, Judge Goliath 
Judge Macubele, um, Judge Parker, um, there was a complaint against Judge Zondo, a complaint against Judge Davis, Judge Cerisi. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are, even, even the process involving um, Judge Mutata hasn't been completed. I think one of the things that we have been thinking about and trying to bring an analysis to bear that would, would help with reform is, is, what, is it, what is going wrong? Is it, is it bad actors? Is it bad apples? Um, and, and that's really the, the problem and we need to just focus on taking out uh, two or three people out of the system and, you know, and then it will right itself. Or is, and I mean, it may not be an either or, or are there issues in the actual system of holding judges accountable um, that are the problem. And I think at this point, we're probably, I think we're probably arguing both. What I think we're definitely not saying is that there are a few rogue actors and if they remove themselves or are removed from the system, um, that it'll go back to being fine. The, the, the process clearly is, is, takes way too long and is, has many opportunities for questioning and you know, taking things on appeal. One of the things Professor Corder said in, in, in a, an article he wrote um, on, the, on this question of judicial conduct is one of the qualities that we might need to look for in judges is that they will accept, accept the decisions of their colleagues and their peers um, in order to make the system work. That if we're going to make the system work, we can't have each and every uh, judge who is involved taking a, a Stalingrad approach, which of course you have to then balance with, you know, judges have rights just like everybody else. So I think there's, there's a number of, of interesting areas that we need to get into in, in terms of reform. Um, reform has not been a particular characteristic of this Chief Justice's tenure. So perhaps we have to look forward to, to the next Chief Justice to really drive some kind of project that, that, would, that would deal with, with changing how things work. The, the concept, and obviously it's a foundational concept of the independence of the judiciary, I, I would imagine that can sometimes sort of um, overflow into a, a feeling among individual judges that any outside um, judgment or decision about their conduct or what they may have said or done, position they may have taken, is a threat to that independence. Um, and that it, it, it creates, if you like, a sort of insularity um, amongst individual judges. So it could be a difficult sort of balancing act there. I think that that's one of the interesting things about the, uh, the JSC and their appointments process, is that this is something you really want to interrogate before you appoint a judge, mm. uh, as a judge. And I mean, I think Bex has spent... Uh, a while looking at those processes as well. And 
you know, just in terms of the criteria that the JSC articulate and use, um, I think he, he may be able to, to speak to, to just how in, unclear those, those are. Bex? So I just wanted to add something before I get to that question, Mike, was the idea of independence also needs to be looked at in two ways. I think it was, it was uh, Professor Kathy Powell from UCT who wrote about there is indiv individual independence and then there's institutional independence. So mm. the individual independence of a judge, it, that has to be protected, obviously, um, but you also have to consider the institutional independence of the judiciary. If there are bad actors within the judiciary and they are not held accountable, how does that impact on the institutional independence of the judiciary? So that's why it's so crucial to have a proper functioning conduct system because it, it, is, it, is, it does not operate for its own sake, but it, it is to safeguard the independence and maintain um, the reputation of, of the judiciary um, holding bad actors to account. And then on the second aspect, um, there is a, a, an issue in the way that the JSC assesses uh, the fitness of a candidate's um, of a candidate to hold judicial office. Um, we have argued, and the judiciary in particular, have made submissions about the the criteria that is used. Um, it seems as if over the years, all the way and uh, since uh, Justice um, uh, Chief Justice uh, Mohammed, there have been a criteria that have been drawn up, but it seems as if they are not applied in the manner of questioning. You'll find that some candidates are asked certain questions, others are not asked other questions. The length of the interviews also varies. That speaks to, to that issue of criteria. And one of the things that we have been um, arguing for is that there should be some sort of a agreement that these are the qualities that we look out for. One of them mm. is a person willing to subject themselves, for example, to um, the rules and the processes of the judiciary. Um, one of the things that um, in that was interesting in yesterday's uh, decision from Judge Mujapil is that in his apology, the Chief Justice is required to explicitly say that he's willing to subject himself to the process of the judicial conduct uh, committee and the, and the JSC Act, which, which is an, an interesting uh, thing to note. Um, it, so it's, it's a it is an issue that sh that is should be assessed at the appointment stage, but it, it particularly becomes relevant at the at the conduct and disciplinary stage. Do you see too much politicization of the JSC and its selection process? As you pointed out, uh, roughly half of the membership uh, are, are political role players, office bearers, members of parliament, minister of justice, etc., etc., and then the presidential appointees. Um, do you think that the composition of the JSC needs to be changed? Well, the short answer is, is yes, the, comp the composition does need to be tweaked a little bit. The, the JSC does tend sometimes to be a bit too large and, and some have argued that it should be um, reduced. But the, the question of whether or not it is too politicized is a question that um, I think uh, Hugh, uh, when he mentions the 1992 paper about the composition, is that you do want to have a role that members of parliament play um, mm. in the appointment of judges. Um, you do, that, that brings a little bit of the legitimacy that you need 
if public representatives are, are involved in, the, in that process. Um, so having members of parliament is not inherently a problem. Um, and then the, the, the four uh, presidential appointments, um, they can be put to good use. They, they, there is a risk that the, the president's um, appointees can be political players and, and, and play an oversized role in, in, the, in the JSC. But in the past, as we've seen, President Mandela appointing uh, Advocate George Bezos, um, President Ramaphosa most recently, he also appointed practicing lawyers and, and even President Zuma appointed practicing lawyers in, in that role. So there is a balance to be struck between the lawyers and the, and the politicians and the JSC. Um, it's just a question of, of, of where that balance needs to be struck. In, in the past, um, I would say pre-2015, it was extremely politicized. We could see it in the manner of questioning from the justice minister, some of the members of parliament. Uh, there were, there were, you, you could see the um, factional, the internal ANC factional battles playing out themselves in the JSC. That has sort of tempered a bit in, in recent years um, where you've seen a sort of a easing of, there are politics involved obviously, but there, there seems to be some sort of balance if you see the role that a politician like Julius Malema plays on, on the JSC versus the ANC politicians. So it, 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 there are politics involved. Uh, it's, it's just a, a question of where the balance should be, should be struck. And, and perhaps it's a question of how the, the JSC is structured. Thank you. I want to move to, uh, away from the JSC for a moment. We are seeing more and more uh, veiled threats, uh, warnings, etc., being issued to the judiciary. Uh, you mentioned Julius Malema uh, from the safety of parliament a couple of weeks ago. He warned that there was the possibility of an uprising against the judiciary if it continued to give decisions that didn't meet with you know, widespread approval. And so it was kind of vague, but that's what we're used to. Um, we've seen, as, as you mentioned, these unsubstantiated claims of uh, uh, bribes being given to certain judges to return uh, verdicts unfavorable to some politicians. Um, Jesse Duarte, for example, published an article which was highly critical on a fairly personal level of Judge Zondo, and then a couple of days later, of course, she had to retract that. But Abili Dlamini has said that the best judges are those that listen to the people, and I'm not quite sure what that means. But are we dealing with just a few isolated sort of spontaneous uh, outbursts from frustrated politicians, or can we discern some sort of a trend? And if, if we do, is, that, is it serious enough to be of concern, Alison? I think there is, there has been, um, there has always been a group um, of, of politicians that are deeply suspicious of the courts. Um, and I think that that has um, come out in rhetoric under different administrations over different, uh, over, over time. I suppose the question we're really asking is, is it getting better or is it mm. getting worse? Mm. And it does seem right now that there has, that it is particularly bad. Um, one of the, the reasons it is particularly bad and, and, and is difficult to deal with is that there are all of these allegations being made 
and that they're not being dealt with. So, for example, you know, the question about Judge Schlopper and uh, Judge President Schlopper and his most recent decision uh, around the, the Member of Parliament, um, the, the fact that the system has not dealt with the many issues that Judge Schlopper uh, has, you know, attracted can only mean that in this situation, the system is less robust than it should be. Yeah. Because it has not been able to deal expeditiously with those complaints. If there was, at this point, only one or two issues that the judiciary were dealing with, and then perhaps a third one was, was added, which was an allegation around a bribe, and the, the JSC was then immediately responding to that by saying, you know, those people who wish to lay a complaint or have evidence, please come forward. Um, mm. You know, we do not believe anything of the sort has happened, but, you know, we urge people to, to come clean and, and, and tell us if things like this have been happening. You know, if there had been a, a robust response, I think we would at this point be better off. Whereas right now I feel like both the judiciary and, and in some ways the, the legal profession, people who, who want to uphold the rule of law and respect for the judiciary are on the back foot. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, not exactly being able to defend a good position. Uh, if, if, I feel if we'd managed to resolve many of these conduct issues, uh, we would be fighting an easier battle uh, in, in order to, you know, uphold the integrity of, of the judiciary. If the judiciary's own house was completely in order, then it would be easier for it to defend itself and for civil society to, to come to its defense. Yeah. I think we should note that certainly after some of the more, um, some of the stronger remarks were, that were made by some of the politicians, I think after Malema's remarks, for example, the general counsel of the bar and one or two other professional associations did release uh, very strong statements in support of the judiciary and, and, and the constitutional mandate of the judiciary. So, but I take your point. I also wanted just to make the point that we highlight certain individual judges around whom there have been problems, and in Schlopper's case, long-term problems. Um, but there are, what, 250, 260 uh, active permanent judges in the country, um, the vast majority of whom get on and do their work by all accounts very well and without controversy. Two, 268 at the last count that I had, mm. um, and, and who are doing their work, you know, every day under, under difficult circumstances. I think with COVID, you know, everything has become harder um, and dealing yeah. with, with infrastructure that isn't ideal. Um, you know, the, 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 the institutional separation of the judiciary from the Department of Justice is something that's that's was and has been an ongoing process. Um, that process kind of stalled in 2012. It's not been something that the current Chief Justice has really had much appetite for, but there is no. potentially um, there are potentially solutions there to some of the the more 
practical infrastructural problems that the that, that judges are facing. So I think, I think whichever way we come at it, there really is an argument for, for reform. Um, and, uh, and I certainly hope the new Chief Justice will have an appetite for, for that kind of work um, because it, it, does, mm. it does seem to be needed. Well, that's a nice lead into what was going to be my last question before we open it up for discussion. Uh, as we said at the beginning of, of the meeting, um, I think it's in October this year, uh, current Chief Justice's term comes to an end. So by the end of the year, we need to have a new one. And Judges Matter published a number of articles on the Daily Maverick, I think, towards the end of last year, which you looked at some of the, the uh, criteria. Uh, you made certain suggestions of the sort of person that is needed. You even floated the names of, of a variety of potential candidates. So if you'd like to wrap up maybe by just um, giving us a synopsis of that, who, what is the kind of person that we need as a new Chief Justice in your opinions? And um, if you feel that you'd like to put some names out there, feel, feel free, Vex. <laughs> Well, Mike, I will, I will not mention names, um, okay. but I will certainly um, speak about the kind of chief justice that we need. Mm. So last year, we, we, we started thinking about exactly the, the kind of, of, of chief justice that we need. And we looked at, firstly, the role of the chief justice. And what we saw what, over the years is that the role of the chief justice has actually um, grown in terms of the responsibilities that the Chief Justice is responsible for, um, uh, the, the prominence and the stature, if you will, uh, of the Chief Justice has, has become extremely important. Um, and one of the things that we've, we've noticed, and, and I think um, uh, Alison spoke up about this just now, about that the idea was that um, it was a project that was initiated by Ch uh, Chief Justice Shalskasin, but uh, quite pushed quite strong, strongly by Chief Justice Noble was an idea of judiciary-led administration where the judges or the judiciary runs the, the courts. Um, that is a project that was started. Um, the Office of the Chief Justice was meant to be that system, but it has stalled. Um, and part of what the Chief Justice, will, the new Chief Justice will be responsible for is driving that project to completion making it clear what the roles and functions of the judiciary versus the ministry or the department of justice will be. And so um, looking at the end, and there's also the role of the chief justice now also involves uh, a, a component that you're running the systems uh, of appointment. The, the chief justice chairs the judicial service commission and has to be responsible for, for developing policies relating to, to those systems um, relating to the conduct system. Um, so there is a policy making function there as well. So considering all of these uh, many, many uh, responsibilities that the, new, that, that the Chief Justice now has, what kind of um, criteria do you look out for when appointing a Chief Justice? And we've tried to sort of draw out some of, some of the important qualities. One of them um, is um, intellectual leadership. Um, you have as a chief justice, they, they are the head of the judiciary, but also the head of the constitutional court or the leader of the constitutional court. They set um, the, 
law basically um, and drive the jurisprudence of, the, of, of, of South Africa. So you need a, a, a judge who will be respond, res, um, respected by the legal profession, by fellow judges who, would, um, who writes, who reads, um, who is able to demonstrate a, a, a excellence in, 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 in his uh, judicial ability. Mm-hmm. And then you've also uh, teased out other qualities like um, uh, management and, and administrative skill, um, considering that you now will be responsible for this judiciary-led administration. Are you a manager? Are you a leader? Are you able to administer systems and make sure that they operate in the way that they should? Um, we've also highlighted issues of um, that the, the chief justice must be a communicator and a diplomat of sorts. They must be able to speak quite confidently on behalf of the judiciary, um, must be able to speak within the judiciary and bring all the judges along, all the officials along um, in making sure that they achieve the idea of, of, of a quality justice. And there's also an international component. Uh, chief Justice Mokweng was um, quite active in the international scene and the new chief justice might also want to play a role there. So there is a level of diplomacy that is involved. And then lastly, um, and this should probably be obvious, but um, the integrity, the mm. reputation and standing of, of the chief justice must be beyond any question. We should all be confident that the person who represents the judiciary must be someone of impeccable uh, uh, quality and integrity. Um, and and those, are, those are some of the qualities that we've highlighted. Of course, there are many, many more and we could uh, unpack them later, but um, those are some of the things that we've, we've, we've highlighted. And with those in mind, um, we try to then think of where could the chief justice candidate be drawn from. Um, we've tried to look at the heads of courts, so the judges, presidents at, at different divisions, and we've tried to highlight candidates from there. Um, we've tried to look at at the constitutional court, for example, who could be the next chief justice from the constitutional court, and then the question of a, a woman chief justice. It, we've mm-hmm. never had woman chief justice in South Africa. Um, if, if, if we're looking at women judges, um, who could be the next chief justice for that? And then we've drawn up some, some candidates from there. So we approach it from a qualities perspective, and then the qualities should then inform who the candidate is. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.